Well, we're here in the book of Galatians, and we're talking about finding freedom in the true gospel. I encourage you there to, to turn to, Genesis, uh, to Galatians chapter 1. And uh, as you turn to Galatians chapter 1, just a reminder as to what's going on in the, the book of Galatians. Again, the big theme of these six chapters is finding freedom in the true gospel. And we're here in the first section, the first two chapters of Galatians, and we are talking about the source of the true gospel. Where does this true gospel come from? And as we talk about the source of the true gospel, uh, Paul has first of all condemned those who would teach a, a false gospel, and then he has turned his attention to the, to the true gospel. And we pick up here in verse 10, as Paul begins to talk about the source of the true gospel. And in verses 10 through 12, we looked at 10 last week, we're looking at 11 and 12 this morning, he, he, he kind of drives home, this is the central thesis of these two chapters. And if you're able to, if you would stand with me in honor of God as we read these verses together this morning, beginning in verse 10 that we looked at last week. Again, Paul has just said, if anyone preaches a different gospel, let him be accursed. And then he says in verse 10, For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. But I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. You may be seated. May God encourage us through the reading of his word this morning. Let's, let's pray. Father, again, we just ask by your grace that you would allow us to live in obedience to you. We thank you for this word. We thank you for uh, your kindness in allowing us to to be together. We thank you for each person that you brought us into relationship with. First of all, as you brought us into relationship with yourself through your son Jesus, and now as you brought us into relationship with one another through our, our faith in your son Jesus. And we recognize that we would not know how to come into relationship with you apart from this gospel message. So help us think very clearly, help me to communicate very clearly this morning the truths of this gospel and and how we have confidence in it and how we've received it. We pray this in your son Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. A few few years ago I was talking with one of my uh, kind of acquaintances, friends, and we were talking about the the gospel. We were talking about kind of uh, his his spiritual journey, and, and as we talked that time, and as we had talked before, I, I realized that as, as he talked about his faith, there was kind of a, a distancing that, that seemed to be taking place. So in other words, sometimes I'll talk to a, a Christian, if I'm talking to a person that I, I, I know their testimony, as they talk about their, their conversion, they'll, they'll say words like, you know, I, I recognized my, my need for a Savior. And they'll talk about the uniqueness of Jesus and the value of Jesus and, and their closeness to God through the gospel, recognizing that they were a sinner, placing their faith in Jesus Christ, recognizing they, they needed a Savior because of their sins, placing their faith in Jesus Christ alone for their salvation, trusting in him, and now living in, in relationship with God. As I talked to this, this friend, that's, that's not kind of the way that he described his, his Christianity. In fact, he talked about how, you know, I, I'd always kind of believed in a God, and then uh, when I was getting married, uh, my wife was a Christian, so I, he used the phrase, so I converted to Christianity, which, which seemed, it seemed kind of like a, a distancing phrase to use, right? 
And so I, I, I kind of asked him some questions. I said, so help me understand, you know, when you say I converted to Christianity, what does that mean? What do you believe about, about Jesus? And he goes, oh, you know, I, I believe Jesus is, uh, is God's son. I said, yeah, but um, just personally, how would you say that you have, have responded to who Jesus is? And he said, you know, I, I said, here's, here's kind of what I believe that the scripture teaches us, that that. Uh, we're, we're separated from God because of our sin, and that Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins to take the penalty for us. And now he provides the way to God, the only way to God, through, through faith in Jesus Christ. And, and uh, my friend said, yeah, that's, that's what Christians believe. I said, well, well yeah, but, but what, do, what do you believe? He goes, well, that's, yeah, that's, that's what I believe as, as a Christian. And, you know, I know uh, my other friends believe different things, and, and those things kind of work for them. My friend, I believe, kind of had an understanding of Christianity that is, that is very common in our culture today. Where people who would identify as Christians would acknowledge, yeah, this is kind of the, the path that I'm taking. This is kind of what I believe about God and my relationship with God. But even those who would identify as Christians would not recognize anything unique about their relationship with God. They would not recognize anything unique about the claims of Jesus Christ and about the gospel message they profess to believe. We live in a culture that is very, what we call, pluralistic. In other words, here's Christianity, and then here's some other religions, and here's no religion, and all these kind of things exist within the, the same culture. D.A. Carson wrote a book called The Gagging of God a few years ago, just a tremendous book that talks about Christianity confronting this pluralistic culture and how Christianity has kind of become one of the just many religions you put on a shelf and a person can go to the shelf and say, you know what, I kind of want a little bit of Christianity or maybe I want a little bit of thisism or thatism or noisms and that's kind of where Christianity is, not just in our culture but even in the lives of many who would identify as Christians. D.A. Carson says this, too, kind of an interesting idea. He says, it's, it's, it's not, when we say that our culture has become secularized, we don't mean that Christianity has been abolished. You know, some people, when they think about you know, the, the churches, or the culture is becoming secular, they think that maybe secular means that the church is, is being abolished or Christianity is being abolished in our culture. He says, no, no, that's, that's not what is happening. Secularization is not the abolishment of Christianity. It's the marginalization of Christianity. In other words, it's taking Christianity and saying, you know what, it's, it's now at the periphery of society. It's at the periphery of my life. And again, even among those who, sometimes in our culture who would identify as Christians, that's, that's where their relationship with God has been pushed, kind of to the periphery. That's to understand the gospel as well. It's kind of one way to understand God and a relationship with him. But brothers and sisters, that's not the true gospel, right? If God has revealed himself in the gospel, that changes everything. It means that the gospel of Jesus Christ is a uniquely authoritative message. And for those of us who would profess the name of Jesus Christ, we are people who don't interact within a pluralistic culture always very well. We are those who believe that there's uniqueness to the claims of Jesus Christ, and we call those that we love to recognize the uniqueness of Jesus Christ as well. There's no other option left for us. If, if Paul is correct here about the gospel, we need to believe in Jesus and Jesus alone, and that changes everything about how you and I live. 
It's a central idea, this idea of where this gospel comes from is this, the central idea of these first two chapters as Paul begins to share his story of faith and how he came into relationship with God and what that means for his ministry. And it changes everything about his ministry and it changes everything about your ministry and mine as well. So here's what I want to do. Here's what I want to do. I want us to, first of all, just kind of look at the central idea, kind of the central claim that Paul is making in these verses, especially here in verse 11. And then I want us to talk about three things about where this gospel we have received came from and where it didn't come from. Okay? So first of all, let's, let's talk about the central idea that we see here in verse 11, the, the idea that controls all the rest of these two chapters and really the rest of Galatians. The first thing I want us to think about is this. The true gospel does not come from man, but is God's special message to us. The true gospel does not come from man, but is God's special message to you and to me. And and look at your Bibles at verse 11, and look at what Paul begins to write. Remember, he's just talked about the, uh, the way in which he has proclaimed the gospel. He's not trying to seek the approval of man. He's not trying to please man. If you're trying to please man, he says, I couldn't be a servant of Christ. Now look what he says in verse 11. He says, for I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. So so notice a couple things here. First of all, notice how he begins, for I would have you know. That's a phrase that Paul uses sometimes to say, hey, this is something really important that I want you to grasp. This is a, a central idea that I'm communicating to you. I want you to understand this. It's very, very important. And he says, this, this gospel that was preached by me isn't man's gospel. Literally, it's not according to man, or some translations say it's not of, of human origin. And Paul says, this, this gospel is preached by me. And remember what he's just said in verses 8 and 9? Remember, he's, he's just talked about how this, as he proclaimed the, the gospel, he talks about how um, you need to make sure you're not holding on to a false gospel. And he says in verse 8, even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. And as we've said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you receive, let him be accursed. And so he's saying, look, if anyone preaches a gospel contrary to that message we preached to you originally, let him be accursed. That is a, a false gospel. And he says, the reason I can say that so strongly is because the gospel that I preach to you that I'm saying, if anyone preaches anything different to that, let him be accursed. The gospel that I preached to you didn't come from man. It's, it's God's special message. This is God's gospel. The reason I can be so strong is that this message is from God, not man. If it was from man, it would be a different story. But the demands that Paul makes, by extension the demands that you and I make upon people when we pro- proclaim the gospel, are profound. They're extensive. And the reason that we can be so bold, the reason that Paul can be so bold, is because it's not our message, it's God's. If the gospel message were man's message, the things we would be saying would be very arrogant. The things we would be telling people to do would be be harsh, condescending. But if these things that we say are from God and his message... The message we proclaim is a loving message, a message message of salvation and deliverance. 
I mentioned a few weeks ago uh, this, this podcast I was listening to about a church startup. And remember that the podcast was a, a secular podcast. It wasn't a, it's not a Christian podcast. It was a reporter kind of talking about this, this church plant beginning. And the, the reporter, as he reported on this story, at first he was kind of trying to be objective, but as the, as the story continued, the story became very much about, or at least a little bit about, his own journey of faith, this reporter's journey of faith. And the reporter acknowledged some years ago he had been a Christian or he would still call himself a Christian. Some years ago, he'd been more involved in the church. Growing up, he'd been involved in church, but in recent years, he had not been. And as he, as he, was, as he was kind of wrestling with that, as he reported on this story, he was kind of talking about how this, you know, this church plant is trying to reach people like me. I'm, I'm an unchurched person, and this church plant is trying to reach unchurched people. And so he's trying to ask himself, why am I not a person involved in church? Why am I not still identifying as a Christian the way that I used to? And and he said something very interesting. He believed that the core issue was an issue of authority. An issue of surrender. He said, you know, I'm just not comfortable surrendering autonomy. I want to be the person who decides what I believe. I want to be the person who decides what's right and wrong. And so to to surrender that authority to someone else makes me very uncomfortable, even surrendering that authority to God. And that's where many of us are. Now, if the gospel message is is some man's message, it makes sense to say, you know what, hey, that's great for you, but I'm going to believe something else. But what Paul says is, look, the the demands, Galatians, the demands that the gospel message makes in your life are profound. The the, the commitment that it means to be a Christian is a profound commitment. It is a life-changing commitment. And if it's a person telling you to do that, then your skepticism is understandable. But this message is not a message from man. It's a message from God. And so the message needs to be protected because the message is an authoritative message. And that's why Paul can say, look, if anyone, if anyone says something contrary to this gospel message that came from God, let him be accursed. And brothers and sisters, the gospel message that you and I say that we believe is a message that changes our lives. In fact, just kind of ask yourself this question as as a thought experiment. If the gospel message is not true, if the gospel message is not true, how does that affect what I do as I walk outside of this room this morning? If the gospel message is not true, How does that change how I live this week? How does it change how I interact with people at work? How does it change how I interact with my friends at school? How does it change the decisions that I make for next month? And how does it affect the the financial decisions that I make? And how does it affect the the relationships that I've been involved in? But if the gospel message is true, if this is a uniquely authoritative message, how does that change? as I walk outside these doors this morning? How does that affect my relationships? How does that affect my conversations? How does that affect how I live my life? If the gospel message, the message that Jesus is the Savior of the world, and that I've been brought into relationship with God through faith in him, and now bought with a price, how does that change conversations, 
How does that change what I watch on television? How does that change the conversations I have with people I love? The gospel message is an authoritative message. The true gospel, Paul is saying, doesn't come from man, but is God's special message of good news to us. Now, let's talk then about kind of three things here about what our gospel is and isn't, okay? That Paul says. That's kind of the main idea. Now, here's... Here's some things that we see as we we go on. Number one, our gospel is not man's invention, okay? Our gospel is not man's invention. Look at what Paul says as he begins verse 12. He says, for I did not receive it, that's the gospel, from any man. Now, notice again a couple things here as he begins verse 12. First of all, that that word receive, What what does that word receive mean? That word receive means oftentimes to receive something in the sense of a, of a tradition, the sense of, of a kind of this, this, this collection of tradition in, in a religious sense, and so it's kind of passed on from person to person. And Paul says, I, I didn't receive this gospel from any man. This wasn't something that, that this guy made up and, and the, the next person, he passed it on to this next person and then she passed it on to this next person. That's that's not the gospel message. The gospel message wasn't an invention in the sense that someone kind of came up with it, but it also wasn't an invention in the sense that it was a tradition. Sometimes there were traditions that were passed on. So you would have, for example, within the, the Jewish faith, you had this revelation from God, and then as the centuries passed, uh, centuries passed, there were traditions and oral laws that had been passed down. And now, in Paul's day, in the first century, much of what was called Judaism was the result of these oral laws and traditions. And and you see this in Jesus's ministry, right? You see Jesus interacting not with people who are holding up God's law and God's revelation, but people who are intent on holding up tradition. For example, Luke chapter 11. Remember Luke chapter 11? Jesus is, is eating with the Pharisees. A Pharisee has, invite, has invited Jesus to eat with him. And it says that uh, the Pharisee was astonished to see that Jesus did not first wash before dinner. And he's talking there about, about this ritualistic type of, of hand washing. It's not that Jesus wasn't washing his hands at all, as far as I know. I, I'm a person uh, who believes it's important to wash your hands. Uh, Jesus and germs are everywhere, so wash your hands. Uh, but that's, that's not the type of hand washing that they're talking about here. They're talking here about this, this oral law and tradition about how you were supposed to wash your hands richly before you ate. And, and the Pharisees astonished that Jesus doesn't do these traditions. And Jesus says to them, look, you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside you're full of greed and wickedness. And then he goes on and he talks about their, their terrible heart condition. You, you tithe mint and rue and every herb, but you neglect justice and the love of God. You should have done the other things without neglecting the, the, the others. Woe to you, Pharisees. You love the best seats. You love the greetings in the marketplaces. And he talks about their, their heart condition. And one of the lawyers who's there says, uh, Teacher, you're insulting us too, which was like the dumbest thing he could have possibly said. And Jesus says, Yeah, yeah, woe to you too. You, you load uh, people with burdens that are hard to bear. You yourselves don't touch the burdens with one of your fingers. In other words, what is Paul saying? He's saying, Look, what I have, this gospel message, I didn't receive it from man. It wasn't something that 
someone came up with, and then they had this story, and then the next person passed it on, the next person passed it on, and now I have it. But it also wasn't made up. It wasn't invented in the sense that it's, it's some tradition. So there's some Pharisee that came up with this, and here's how you need to live your life, this Christian way, and now the next person passed it on, and now I've received it. That's also not what has taken place, Paul has, is saying. Now, Paul isn't saying that it's wrong to receive something passed down from human beings. He's not saying it's wrong to disciple people. 1 Corinthians 11, he talks about what the, the thing that he received from the Lord, the teaching he received from the Lord. 1 Corinthians 15, he talks about how the, the Corinthians received his teaching. Here in Galatians 1, he talks about how, remember he says, uh, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you receive, let him be accursed. So he's not saying it's wrong for people to pass on the true gospel. He's saying what you need to understand is that this gospel is not an invention. I didn't receive it. It wasn't some sort of oral tradition that was passed on from person to person, and now I'm proclaiming it. Paul's point This message of faith alone is not some human invention. It's not some human tradition. And brothers and sisters, we know, we know that tradition can sometimes pass as biblical Christianity, right? Traditions are good. Traditions can be helpful. But sometimes, and here's where they become dangerous, Traditions can replace true gospel worship. Paul says that's not what's happening here. I was reading an article uh, this past week about traditions and like the most dangerous traditions for a church to touch. Some of these seem pretty obvious, right? Worship and music style, that's pretty obvious that that can be a traditions can develop there and it can be dangerous to, to touch those things. Uh, order of worship service. You know, there's a, there's a tradition. You do this and then you do this and, the, and if, if you mess up that worship service, uh, thou shalt not do that, right? <laughs> Times of the worship service. And this article talks about how, how dangerous it is to, to change the time of a worship service. The committee structure, having congregations change committee structures or to, to change ministries and programs. I was, I was talking recently to a, a, a pastor at a church that had over a hundred ministries at their church, and they, they didn't feel like they could touch any of them because of how closely tied to tradition some of those things were. The lo, location of a church facility. We were just nailing these, right? Um, <laughs> You, how you use rooms, what you do at business meetings. Uh, this wasn't listed in the article, but, but what you wear. Like, these things are tradition. Now, again, there's nothing wrong. There's nothing wrong about keeping the, the time that a church meets, right? There, you, we could do what we've done, or we could do today what we decided to do today. We could do it until the Lord returns, and there would be nothing wrong in that, right? Where, where does this become dangerous? It becomes dangerous for a church when our focus on tradition begins to replace our passion for the true gospel. Where we say, you know what, I, I love these traditions and these, these ways in which the gospel has been expressed in my life, and I love them so much that I'm willing to, whenever the gospel and these things come into conflict, I'm going to pursue these things instead of the gospel ministry. 
And the, the great thing about a, a young church, a, a church plant, when it begins, is a church can ask the question, okay, what's, what's the most effective way to be passionate about the gospel and gospel ministry? And as a church gets older, it's harder for us to ask those questions. Sometimes it's much more like, well, what have we done? What are we kind of used to? What's going to kind of cause the least waves as opposed to, okay, what, what is the true gospel and how, what's the most effective way for us to be passionately communicating the gospel in our lives and the lives of the people we love? Now, you say, where, where are you going with all this? What does this have to do with Paul, what Paul's saying? Paul understands that it doesn't take a divine work of God for us to latch on to invention. It doesn't take a divine work of God for someone to get passionate about tradition. And Paul is saying, look, I I understand, Galatians, I understand that you've been around a lot of of Jewish people who get excited about traditions and hand washings and tithing and all those sorts of things. I, I understand that. That's not what this is. This disagreement that exists between me and the people who have been coming to you is not about human tradition. Our gospel is not man's invention. Secondly, our gospel is not man's misinterpretation. Look at what he says next. He says, I did not receive it from man, nor was I taught it. You say, what's the difference between receiving it and and being taught it? I think that being taught it is kind of a subcategory of receiving it. So here's, here's this this guy invents something or these, these traditions and he passes it on to Paul. Paul saying, no, that's not what happened. Or there's a, a situation where this, this person would teach it to Paul and the people in Galatia would have been familiar with rabbinic uh, teaching. Like you have this rabbi and he has this disciple and the rabbi teaches the disciple, he passes it on. And the, the function of a disciple is to understand the teaching of his rabbi. So his rabbi says, here's what you need to do. And the disciple says, okay, that's what I need to do. And the disciple tries to do what the, t- the rabbi teaches him to do. And Paul's saying, that's, that's not what happened here. Now, again, think about the first century culture and these rabbinic schools. You have two rabbis. This isn't the beginning of a joke. Um, you have... You have these two rabbis, okay? And uh, one rabbi says, okay, this is, this is the way that I think a person should live their life. And a second rabbi says, no, no, I think this is the way that a person should live their life. And then each rabbi teaches their disciples. And now you have disciples who have different interpretations about how a person should live their life. So you see this again in the Gospels. You see it in Matthew 19, where Jesus is, is, taught, is asked this question by a Pharisee, and it says that a Pharisee wanted to, to test him. He wanted to understand what rabbinic school Jesus was a part of, and so he asked him the question about divorce. Remember that? He's testing him. What, what interpretation do you take, Jesus? Paul's life in Acts, remember he's, he's in Jerusalem and he's, he's talking to people in Jerusalem, and he nearly causes a riot, and he's brought before the Sanhedrin, this, this Jewish council. And in Acts 23, it says that Paul, um, this is probably one of the, 
I, this, this story makes me laugh when I, when I read it. Uh, Paul is being brought before the Sanhedrin, and he, and he recognizes, you know, there's some Sadducees in this room, and there's some Pharisees in this room, and they're all upset at me. I'm going to change that a little bit. The, the Sadducees don't believe in the resurrection. The Pharisees do. And Paul it says he cries out in the council, Brothers, I'm a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I'm on trial. In other words, hey, I'm here because I believe that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. That's why I'm here. We'd said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say there's no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledged them all, and a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees stood up and contended sharply, and the dissension, it says, became violent. You know? So I can just imagine Paul almost mad at him, he goes, hey, I'm here because I believe in the resurrection, and he kind of steps back a little bit and just <laughs> watches those guys go at it, Okay. They had to remove him from the room as those guys went at it. So what is Paul saying? He's saying, okay, people in Galatia, you've seen rabbinic arguments before. You've seen two uh, uh, disciples of different rabbis get into arguments. And here, here's the danger. The people in Galatia could believe, oh, this is just some, this is just these Jewish rabbis being Jewish rabbis. These guys believe this, and Paul believes this, and, and we'll let them sort out the finer points of, of, of law and Paul is saying, that's not what's taking place here. That's not what is taking place here. The source of these these different teachings is not some honest disagreement about interpretation. This is the the core of the gospel. Sometimes in human relationships, uh, things can be confusing in terms of of how we, we communicate truth. And sometimes, whenever people are confronted with the truth of the gospel, they can say, well, you know what? Um... That's, that's your truth. This person has this truth. These are just different interpretations. And we call this sometimes the, the postmodern prison. The postmodern prison. We say, well, you know what? Um, communication is hard. You people kind of have this interpretation. This person has this interpretation. Who's really to know who's right and who's wrong? These things are just kind of an, impossible. This is not a new way to respond to Revelation. Isaiah 29, Isaiah describes this postmodern prison. It says, The vision of all of God's revelation has become to you like the words of a book that is sealed. When men give it to one who can read, saying, Read this, he says, I, I, can't, I can't read it, it's sealed. Or when they give the book to another who cannot read, they say, saying, read this, he says, I cannot read. So in other words, God is, is communicating this revelation to them, and, and people are, are receiving the revelation and saying, ah, I, I can't understand it, there's, there's a seal on it. Or, hey, I'd, I'd love to read it, but I can't. And they're saying, look, I'm not responsible for God's communication to me because I, I just can't understand it. And Paul is saying, look, that's, that's not a viable response here. You can't say, well, I, I just don't understand, I you know, it's your interpretation, this is my interpretation. That's not how God speaks about his truth. Truth is knowable. Not all truth, but the gospel truth is knowable. Listen to what Paul tells Timothy in Second Timothy. In Second Timothy chapter 1, he says that God saved us. He called us to a holy calling, not because of his own, I'm sorry, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. And which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and, and brought life and, and immor- immorality to, to light through the gospel. So here's this, here's this gospel, and it comes bringing life. And in 2 Timothy, he tells 
he goes on in, in verse 11 and he says, for, for which I, this, this gospel for which I was appointed a preacher and an apostle and a teacher, which is why I suffer as I do, but I'm, I'm not ashamed for I know whom I have believed and I'm convinced there's this, there's this epistemological understanding and conviction. I'm, I'm convinced that God is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Follow, Timothy, the pattern of sound words you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Now, what, is, what does all this mean? Paul is saying, you can be confident of this gospel message. This gospel message is not some invention. It's not some misinterpretation. This gospel comes from God. And you say, hey, Daniel, you're, you're preaching to the choir. I'm there. But what do we do in a pluralistic culture? Because the things you're saying, not everyone believes. Hey, I'm on board. My fr- some of my friends are on board, but some of my friends are not. Some of my family members are not. What do we do then? Well, that brings us to the third thing I want us to think about this morning. And this is going to be something we continue to talk about in coming weeks. But here's Paul's point. Third thing, our gospel is God's revelation of Jesus Christ. He says, again, verse 12, But I received it as I received this gospel message. I received this gospel message through a revelation of of Jesus Christ. And what I think he's saying there, based upon later, like I think it's in verse 18, he's talking about how God the Father revealed the gospel of Jesus Christ. God revealed his Son in a special way. We have not known his Son apart from God divinely revealing him to us. Now this is really important for us to understand. Because this, this is the, the crux of what Paul is going to get into. There are some things that we cannot know just from observation. There are some things about people we can't know just, just by looking at a person. We can't know what a person is thinking just by, sometimes we can. I see what you're doing. Um, Sometimes, like with our young kids, with our young children, we look at our young kids and say, yeah, I, I can tell you're upset. Um, we'll deal with that. Or I can tell you're having a good time. But as your kids get older, it's, it's harder to, to know what they're thinking unless they, they tell you what they're thinking. It's hard to know why they're upset about things unless they, they tell you this is, this is what's going on. In fact, recently, uh, my wife and I were having a conversation. She said that one of our kids was was uh, sad about something. And I said, "Well, well, what are they sad about?" And she says, "I don't know." And I said, "Well, you find out." Like you, you, you uh, we're on the phone. I said, "Hey, just just don't let them not tell you. Just find out." And there's like this pause on the phone, right? Like she's thinking, "What? Like I'm going to waterboard them or something? Like, <laughs> what? How am I going to make them tell me, right?" And I, I mean, there's this pause. I'm like, okay, well, not make them, but, you know, just, just don't give up. You, know, like, you cannot know what your older children are thinking unless they tell you. There's, there's, there needs to be revelation, okay? When it comes to the gospel, we need revelation. Now, now just a couple things here about revelation, okay? Let's just kind of five thoughts here about revelation. We won't get too deep into these, but... These are just some things to help us think about this word revelation. Revelation means this, this divine act where, where God discloses something that's unknowable apart from him revealing it. So revelation is God disclosing something about 
the, the world or about himself, his character that we would not know otherwise. So the, the first thought that I think it's helpful for us to realize about Revelation is, uh, first of all, God graciously reveals himself through what we call general revelation. God, God graciously reveals himself through general revelation. And that just means that um, the knowledge of God's existence, his character, um, those things can be known by, by looking at creation. Okay? So, for example, uh, Psalm 147 talks about how God sends out his command to the earth. It talks about how he, he hurls down his crystals of ice like crumbs. Who can stand before his cold? He, he sends out his word and, and melts them. He makes his, his wind blow and the waters flow. He declares his word to Jacob, his statutes and rules to Israel. And So he's talking about how just even in, even in Revelation, even in, in creation, we, we, see, we see things about God. So number one, God graciously reveals himself through his general, general revelation. Uh, Paul talks about this when he's talking to people in Galatians, Acts 14. He talks about how, how God didn't leave himself without witness. He did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. So God just general, generally reveals himself, okay? But here's the second thing that's important to remember. We cannot grasp the gospel just through general revelation, okay? Just by looking at the moon, we can't grasp the gospel of Jesus Christ. Just by looking at a bird, we can't understand the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul in Romans 10 would say, how will they call on him in whom they have never, whom they have not believed, and how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard, and how are they to hear without someone preaching we, we cannot grasp the gospel through just looking around us at Revelation. Now, number three, a third thing to think about when we think about Revelation. Number three, God graciously reveals himself and his gospel through his special revelation. Okay? So God, God does reveal the gospel, and he, he does do it in, through special revelation. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1 says, Long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. So God gives us graciously, gives us general revelation, and we can see the things about God through looking at the stars, and we can understand things about God through seeing the mountains, but we can't understand the gospel. But God does reveal the gospel to us through special revelation. But the fourth thing that's important to think about this morning, to think about this text, even, this is, this is, uh, this is important as well, Even the knowledge of the gospel alone can't save us. Paul understood intellectually the gospel before he was saved, right? He knew that the people that he was persecuting in were identifying themselves with with Jesus Christ. A person can intellectually understand a knowledge of the gospel and not be saved. Which brings us to the, the last thing. As we think about Revelation, God graciously works through his spirit to reveal the truth of the gospel to our hearts and help us understand, believe, and respond to the gospel. Let me say that again. God graciously works through his spirit. 
in a special way, to, to reveal the truth of the gospel to our hearts and to help us understand the gospel, believe the gospel, and allow us to respond to the gospel. What am I saying? I'm saying that for a person to respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ, this gospel that is God's special revelation, God needs to do a special work to allow us to do that. Because our hearts are hard and callous to the gospel. Simon Peter in Matthew 16 will say, you are the Christ, you're the the son of the living God. He says it and he believes it. And Jesus says, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. In 1 Corinthians 2, Paul will describe this reality of how the Spirit allows us to understand the things of God. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, Paul will talk about the communication of the gospel. And he says, our gospel came to you, you believers of Thessalonica, not only in word, not only here's the content of God's special revelation, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. So what happened? Paul communicated this divine message from God and God's spirit moved within the hearts of people and they responded to this gospel message. Now, what is the implication for you and for me as we live in a pluralistic world in which Christianity is simply one other religion that is on a shelf? It means, brothers and sisters, that we pray. And we pray hard. First of all, that God's Spirit would work within us in a special way. That we would believe the truths of the gospel. As we leave this morning, as we'd stand up in our chairs, not yet, and we'd walk out gently through the, through the, through the rows and out the doors, that our lives would reflect the hearts of people who have been transformed by the gospel and a conviction that the gospel is true, that God Spirit would work within us in a special way. And then we pray fervently that God would work in the hearts of the people we love. Our friends at school. Our children whose hearts seem hard. Our family members whose hearts seem hard. That God would work in a powerful and in a way of conviction that God's special revelation would continue. That God's special revelation would continue through the work of his Spirit. Let's pray. Father, we recognize that this gospel we preach doesn't come from man, but it's it's your gospel. It's your special message of good news. And so, Father, we place confidence in you this morning to work powerfully through your gospel. We pray that your gospel message would, first of all, as we've mentioned, that it would change our hearts. Our hearts would be convicted and convinced of these truths. And then, Father, we pray that by your grace those that we love would respond to this gospel message. They would believe in your son Jesus, and they would live lives of of transformed uh, grace through your power. We pray this in the name of your son Jesus. Amen.